You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we're going to take a deep dive into solutions to improving our housing supply pipeline. We're going to be chatting with the General Manager of Land Development at Parcel and the Vice President of UDIA Western Australia. It is Jeremy Cordina. Thank you very much for coming in, mate. It's going to be a really interesting chat and I'm sure very insightful with all the stories you've got to share. Thanks, Trent. Really great to be here today. I guess there are so many ways we can tackle this conversation, improving supply. We can obviously talk about government taxes and uh, duties. We can talk about local government culture and policy. We can talk about state government policy. We can talk about the issues we face when it comes to just general cost of supply and uh, Landgate getting their act together, Western Power getting their act together. I, I honestly don't know where we can start because they're all so relevant to the business of providing supply in Western Australia. But I guess firstly, before we move into talking about all those things, let's have a quick chat if we can about your job on both sides of the coin as general manager at Parcel and also a big impact you're having at UDIAWA as well. How is life juggling those two roles? Yeah, sure. What specifically are you guys delivering at Parcel for the community right now? I suppose Parcel more generally is a bit of an anomaly within WA's land development industry in that we sit inside a building company. So Dale Orcock owns the ABN group. There's a number of building companies in there and then there's Parcel as well. So we do land developments, but we also do apartment developments as well. How's the mix of that going at the moment? Well, it's zero and 100 essentially. So (laughs) the apartment side of things is really difficult at the moment due to construction costs mainly. Very difficult to justify building a new apartment building when the end price for the two-bedroom apartment is less than the construction cost before you allow for land and planning and all that sort of stuff. That's a stark reality, isn't it? It is. Normally there might be, oh, the margin's just not there. But the reality is the margin's actually negative right now. Wild negative and until we have some sort of price growth in those areas where that density exists then that's going to be the way it continues you don't see construction costs dropping enough or dropping at all in that space for that to be part of the solution as many people have seen in the papers a number of those builders have gone out of business i don't see that too many new builders in that sector turning up nor do i see them dropping their price points it's a difficult business to be in a lot more perceived risk than there was a few years ago and therefore you'd be either recovering losses that have been made over the last few years or just protecting yourself for the future. Why would you drop prices when there is no need to do that unless you need to find work somewhere? Yeah, I think the thing that some, uh, well, many people wouldn't realise is that a lot of these longer-term builds involve setting a price today for materials and labour that they may call on in a year and a half's time. A lot of time risk there. There's a lot of time risk. And historically that estimation has been relatively accurate. In the last three or four years, if you could accurately estimate any cost, you'd be doing a lot better than me and 90% of the population, I'd suggest. So let's move to that land development side, which, as you said, is 100% of what Parcel is delivering at the moment. What are the realities there? But also, give us an idea of some of the projects you guys are actually delivering right now. Yeah, sure. We've got lots of projects across Perth, ranging from Yanship all the way down to Baldivis out to Mundajong. So we pretty much capture most 
key markets within Perth Metro, and, and that's Perth Metro is pretty much where we stay. We've got a focus on first home buyers. We do have some infill projects, but our main portfolio sits around those first home buyers. The reason that those outer projects are sort of moving heavily at the moment is that's where the land supply is. We have a lot of investors coming over from over east at the moment. As you probably be aware, the, you can buy just about three homes in Perth for the one in Sydney, Melbourne at mm-hmm. the moment. So there is definitely capital coming from the east, which is causing further problems for those first home it's buyers trying to get locals in. out, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. So the land market where obviously you look at the data and you can see not many sales going on. Mm. But what I am seeing is that those projects that are getting on and, and getting to market, the theme seems to be that most of them are selling. Yeah, that's right. Through the land sector, so the civil sector, and also the building sector, there's actually a supply constraint. Over the last 10 years, because of that downturn, we've essentially let labour go. A lot of labour's left the state. The base is just so low now that it's very hard to get out of first gear again. Yeah, either fortunately or unfortunately, um, when things improve, the mining sector sucks a lot of that labour out of the construction sector as well. So... Yes, there's a lot of demand out there, but there are still capacity constraints in both the civil section of our industry, but also the building sector as well. So you guys are working hard to deliver what you can with the constraints. You've got a number of projects in the land space, the apartment space not moving like most developers would also admit. Let's look at the other hat you've got, UDIA. How's life going over there at UDIA (laughs) with Tanya? So yeah, I've been on UDA for 13 years now. So I first got involved back in 2008 as a young pup. I'm now the vice president and main focus is for me within that structure is to try and work with state government in particular to improve the cost structure that we have to deliver. So advocacy. Um, advocacy really but it's not trying to push costs away it's more about trying to deliver actual benefit to our customers so what do i mean by that if you're going to charge a number for infrastructure let's make sure we get that infrastructure Mm. if we're going to charge fees for planning approvals let's make sure those planning approvals are delivered in a timely manner so we can actually then commercially put something on the ground Yeah, I think there's a lot of people listening right now in in that space that are affected by that who pay their fees, do their work and uh, held to ransom by a lot of processes there where we're not in control and we have to play a ball. And there's a lot of risk and perceived risk in the delivery of supply these days that didn't Mm. exist a long time ago. I assume being so high up at EDIA these days, you'd recommend anyone in the development space, planning space to get on board, be a part of it and join the crew at UDI in some capacity. Yeah, no, we as an industry need every single brain that we can get in order to help advocate for a better outcome for our customers. I think that there's a lot of work to do now. There'll be even more work to do in the future. We probably need more young and more diversity within our organisation as well to make sure that we're not not advocating for the same things. I think EDIA EDIA does well at that though. You look at the sundowners, you look at the events, there's a lot of young people getting involved these days, men and women obviously, which is a fantastic mix and across a number of businesses as well. Yeah, we just need to make sure that everybody has a voice that is then able to be transferred through to our advocacy policies of which there are many and varied so and new ones come up every day you know the most recent one is the apartment pos stuff you know every time we'll something that. like that comes up we need to have a response and it needs to be a measured one and and one that is not just no for the sake 
of saying, no, we need to be a solutions-based organisation. The new Minister for Planning, John Kerry, yeah. will be in your seat in week's time. Yep. And uh, I'm very proud that that will be happening. Yeah. It's an opportunity for me, but I think also for our whole fraternity via this podcast to start asking him the right questions about where he wants things to go, but also start providing information on the priorities and solutions that he should be focusing on to help us fix his problems in terms of delivering, which is one of, I think, the three big issues WA has right now, one being housing supply, two being health, and three being corrections. We're obviously not involved in the last two, but the first massive issue, probably the biggest issue we've had in housing for a long time being housing supply, the most critical we've had in my lifetime. We as a community need to be able to get together and provide a unified front which is what we can obviously do through UDIA, through PCA, through REWA, all these organisations, to start interfacing as effectively as possible to provide this set of solutions and prioritise these to get things moving because we're having this conversation for a reason. There are clearly a list of issues there, some very easy to fix, some a lot more structurally ingrained that would start to free up the supply pipelines, right? I think the, the fact that John has housing and also planning is a really positive thing and uh, lands and lands and yeah. homelessness which are, you know yeah. is a big part of that continuum and we, yeah exactly the housing continuum I'm glad you raised that that's something that I feel very strongly about we we need to ensure that we have supply along each one of those stepping stones so you know starting at homelessness into social housing affordable housing private housing being the ultimate goal yeah exactly so john's got a good understanding of the issues that the industry faces as housing minister he's facing the same ones they don't get a free kick they have to go through the same planning and cost assessments that the private industry has to go through yeah, I think that it'll be a good step for us to sort of work together and figure out where we're not adding value. Some fresh That's energy. He's yeah. a can-do sort of fella. He is. Yeah. He provides that fresh energy to the table to say, let's start breaking the wheel here yeah. and start solving problems. And I'm very confident that he will bring that attitude to the table. For me, the simple message is where are we not adding value? Where are we spending money? But we're not adding value. So there's plenty of things that we do, which I would classify as busy work or things that put a barrier in the way of of getting to that supply that we're both looking to achieve. So if we can have a similar collaborative approach like we had during COVID, and I mean we being industry and government, all levels of government. It was a different feel, wasn't it? It was a different feel. It was a different outcome. So for the first time in my career through COVID, I genuinely felt that we as an industry, local and state government, working together towards a common goal, And the usual sort of... Adversarial nature. Yeah, all of that sort of stuff just just fell away. I think we should reflect on that and celebrate what we achieved back then, but also acknowledge that we can do it if we're motivated to do so. So unfortunately, and I understand why, government often makes rules for the lowest common denominator and rules are set up in order for there never to be issues in a specific area. But what it does is just adds process, time, complexity, cost. Let's talk about that. Let's segue into some of those examples. And I've got three and we'll start with the first one, which is a big one that came out mid-Feb this year. And I think you would agree with me, it couldn't have been a worse time. The median density code was announced in its finality in February, will be gazetted in a couple of months in September. What it seems to be doing 
is increasing the minimum threshold of built form for the medium density, which increases the minimum cost to provide supply and will impact especially which big proponents of the medium density delivery are the mum and dad developers in being able to deliver things they can afford like single story triplex developments. I would suggest that the medium density code is on the right path in terms of its ideology of providing more green space, a variation to the built form products. But what it's doing really in my understanding is predicating and mandating far more expensive delivery, which will either mean far more expensive product or no delivery at all. Yeah, You've obviously spent a lot of time looking at this policy because it affects the way that the ABN group will be delivering products across its spectrum of housing and development. What are your thoughts on, one, the timing of it, two, the idea of it, and three, how it's going to impact our industry in the short term? I'll start with the timing of it. I think, I think it's pretty clear the timing of it is one of the biggest issues with it. There is a transition period, but what a lot of people may not realise is that to bring a new product into market, it requires testing and then usually some prototypes to be delivered. The way that the project builders work is that they are trying to deliver a range of products, a tight range of products, as efficiently as possible. And that's why if you build a four by two with a project builder, per square meter, it'll be cheaper than a smaller builder because they have the economies of scale, they've got repeatability, and repeatability equals affordability. So if we start there, to have to redesign what is the full suite of products that the project builders have at this point in time the stimulus seems like a long time ago but all of the project builders are still building stimulus homes which is a blight on the program itself yeah that's right so that bubble of building is nearing completion now but it's still in the system so builders are at full capacity and then some with not a lot in the pipeline along the breadth of the building companies in Perth because they're focused on just delivering. You think, look about BGC, for example. Yeah, that's BGC is a good example. On purpose, nothing on the pipeline. Exactly right, yeah. And the bigger building companies want to deliver on time and on price for their customers, you know, that they've stayed in business for a long time because that's been a cornerstone of their businesses. So none of them are delivering that now and we understand why. Yeah, yeah. So we need to get you know, back to neutral before you <laughs> throw everything in the bin and have to start again. So timing is one thing. I think that September 25 seems like a long way away. It's not really by the time you have to redesign everything and then build some prototypes of those. Well, that's for assets, large so. house and land packages. Yeah. We think about urban infill. Oh. It's happened in two months. So yeah. any mum and dad who wants to do an infill project, all your plans for a triplex in yeah. Warwick, on 728 square metres, they're out the window. So a lot of people just won't know about it. I mean, it's easy for us to discuss it and we know the detail and we know it's coming down the pipe, but most people won't know that this is happening. And as a result, we'll probably find out once they... get caught. Yeah, once they, they put their planning applications in. I will say in relation to do I support the initial premise of it, I think the initial premise from the minister was that the proliferation and amount of hard space being delivered in these triplex developments they weren't necessarily being controlled so it was just sort of a blanket zoning across an area and then mm. every single block was being cut up into three that built form outcome it's uh, not great needed it's imp- not the best needed improvement yeah, so it think, could, it's not optimal is it no that's right and and in those infill areas where 10 20 30,000 delivers you a different type of home but it's at a higher quality and there's more green space, I can see the value there because the overall value of those homes is 
eight nine hundred thousand dollars you apply thirty thousand dollars to a home out in the greenfield areas that's 10 percent the overall house land package so i think you underestimate the impact it will have on on those infield suburbs when you look at let's use warwick as a perfect example yep. up until well the city of general ups planning policies have sort of augmented this in the last year anyway but up until recently you could put three single story triplexes yep. on a 728 square meter sixth of an acre lot right yep. when this median density policy comes in what it essentially says is the setbacks and the green space required for each of these blocks will be such that you won't be able to build that standard triplex anymore. You're either going to have to drop a car bay, drop a bedroom, or go to two stories. Yeah. Now, most consumers don't really want two bedrooms or one car bay. And what that does is that triplex that was $600,000 to build turnkey with current market prices is about eight fifty nine hundred now anyway. Yeah. You make that two-story, we're talking one and a half mil. Mum and dad developers don't have that money to deliver that. It's too small for parcel to bother delivering. No. Who's going to deliver it? It's not going to be delivered. So when these chaos comes in the market, yes, opportunities arise, but there's also this real consternation where you will have this huge time frame where what we're trying to achieve, 47% urban infill, yeah. we're not anywhere near it. This is a perfect example, example number one of many we can talk about where the policy that's been brought in doesn't work to help achieve the urban infill that we're looking to catch up on. It actually works against it in the short term and pro probably medium term as well. Yeah, and I think that when you combine my comments around apartments and really high density stuff with the MD codes on triplexes, we need to find a different solution to brownfields or infill medium density. One that's palatable to the community that lives there because that is a fundamental problem. They're a big stakeholder yeah, and it, it, is, it is, especially in the western suburbs where yeah. most people would love to live if they could yeah. at, at a certain price point. I've got a, one of my best mates lives in New Farm in Brisbane, which yeah. is essentially Nedlands Dalkeith. He lives in an apartment there. Yeah. And the first thing he said to me, because he was a bit humble and bashful about it, he said, yeah, I sort of live in the Dalkeith. And he said, but I'd never be able to afford it other than the fact that I live in an apartment there. Yeah. And it's not like there's the one apartment building there. The whole suburb is littered with them. They make the most of their water frontage as well. It's not just tied up in R10, 1,000 or 2,000 square meter blocks that very few people can afford. The best amenity is shared by the most people. We have the opposite culture here in Western Australia where we shove it to Sterling Highway and hopefully someone wants to live there. Hopefully we can afford to develop it in the first place and obviously that's where the gap sits. And I think there's probably a midpoint there where we can move towards higher density in brownfields by essentially increasing the density for the land component on the cell ends so that we are able to deliver front-loaded two-story terraces or single-story um, terraces. Explain this idea further. We spoke about this off air before. Yeah. Give us this. This is a great idea. Yeah, so I think one of the key issues that you hear time and time again with density is that it's jarring. All right, so you're going from seven, 800 square meter blocks, single-story and a sea of them to four or five story towers and a proposed sea of them. I think that it's, it's too big a jump too quickly. So the alternative that we're used to is rear battle axes and a lot of those, mm. and that clearly has its own issues. Something that we haven't done extensively, uh, it's been done, but it hasn't been done sort of unilaterally across brownfield developments, is to redevelop the cell ends. And what I mean by that is as you go down the street, you turn at the intersection, there's another road that sits in behind it. That little cell of land has the ability 
to turn two homes into eight or nine. So the end of a street block, yeah, essentially. Exactly. Where that suburb might be an R20 or even an R30 or 40, yep. just the end of every street block, Everyone. which might have two or three or four properties sitting next to each yep. other on it. Upzone that. Just that spot. And we have this terrace on the end of every street block of, of two-story or maybe three-story yeah. houses. Oh, no, it could even be single-story. So I think that's where we don't need to predicate the built form outcome. In certain locations, three-story, four-story might be palatable. In other locations that might be a bit further out or don't have that level of amenity, then a single-story might be appropriate. But what you're doing is you're providing a, a narrow frontage. It might only be a two-bedroom property, but you're actually providing some diversity into that market, which might only have all four-by-twos or five-by-threes, mm. as the case may be. And mum and dad still want to live in that locality. They don't need a five-by-three anymore. They're happy to move into a two-by-two two or a three-by-two on a single-story 150-square-metre block because they're not interested in the garden. I tell you... I'm not looking to move out anytime soon, but I'm not interested in my garden either, I can assure you of that. So, <laughs> so what you're saying for those people who are trying to imagine it is the mm. end of all the cell blocks, they might be an R60 or an R80 style land zoning. Yeah. And we still therefore have to fix up how we're going to get the garages in. Because one of the issues we yeah. have with the medium density code is they're setting these minimum garage width percentages of the block, yeah. which is really predicating that blocks now need to be 12 meters wide again. Yeah, that's right. And that's so going back. Backwards, isn't it? In my mind, it is as well. I think as an industry, we only just started to see some of this narrow frontage product being delivered, either single or double. I agree with you. I think we're going backwards. The infill thing is hard. And so to have a minimum width of 10 or 12 metres in infill, it just seems counterintuitive. Especially when so many blocks are 18 metres wide. Yep. Yeah. So all you're doing is forcing a house behind a house in yeah. that space. I was having a conversation with a mate yesterday who bought property in Craigie. Yeah. He said, I've got this great price. What are you going to do? He said, well, I was thinking of doing a side-by-side. I said, how wide is the block? He said, 18 metres. I said, well, you're doing two-storey? He said, nah. And I said, well, yeah. it ain't happening. Yeah. And that's the reality of it, it is. unfortunately. Only because we have these minimum width issues. It is. And you can go down to single garage, but the problem then comes in the maximum wall length in the new MD codes is, is problematic, which means you end up with a lot of articulation in the perimeter. Yeah. And that hasn't been tested yet. There's no builder I know out there that's delivered to that level of articulation. So Let's talk about the next policy which came out in the last 12 months, and yeah. that is the school's contribution policy this obviously affects larger land developers anyone doing five lots or more yeah all it's doing really i look at this is just another tax on consumers on clients because that cost will inevitably be passed on to the consumer in the sales price of the lot explain how that's working if you can in, in as concise way as possible yeah sure so for me that's just another line item that i add to the overall assessment of any new development that we do as we sit here today and the number will go up government charges being that federal, state or local, sit at around fifty dollars to $70,000 per block. Now, if you're in the inner city areas, that number is actually significantly lower. It might only be 15000 As you go further out into the suburbs, you're paying more and more and more and more. And as a principle, I think that we've had this constant position that the first home buyers out in these greenfield areas are going to be the ones that pay for all of this they're essentially paying for the infrastructure. Yeah, the schools, the police office, Everything. fire station, the libraries, the streets, rec centres, yeah, the whole shooting match. Now, should there be contribution towards some of those items? Absolutely. But 
the pendulum swung very hard and I think that there's a counterbalance circling back to the Department of Education. I think this is just another state tax that's being laid in. Now, there's always been contribution towards schools, but the new rules add what I call busy work to that contribution where engaging valuers to pick the number and, you know, that's costing money and It's immense values. I'll give you a great example. I'm doing a fairly small infill subdivision in Canning Vale. It's only two hectares, 34 watts. Yeah. Now, I paid a relatively high price for that block because it was shovel ready. The way that that contribution is calculated is essentially a square meter rate on the block. Divide that by the amount of blocks you're putting in. That's yep. what you have to pay to a maximum of $4,500 a block. Yep. So we're talking about a $160,000 contribution that otherwise doesn't seem I would have been paying. Yep. And I've had to go into battle with the Department of Education. And the reason I've got a valid argument here that it looks like I'm going to win is because there is no nexus between the 160 grand they want to charge me and the adding of any schools yeah. to the local area. Now, the local area, my understanding, would be the local intake area yep. for kids, right? Now, that area already has five schools that their annual reports are saying they're struggling to keep open because they don't even have the kids to justify the schools. Yeah. Now, their justification is, well, it will go towards paying for a new school in Byford. And they say, well, there's no nexus there at all. Yeah. We think about, again, that theme of we should be doing everything we can to create policies to assist supplier right now and not stand in the way of it. Yep. This is a perfect example where a developer is trying to provide urban info to an area that would justify the use of the existing schools. And we're trying to charge him 160 grand just to put into government coffers that will indirectly go somewhere towards the school somewhere in the future. All it's doing is adding more cost to infill. Might be the difference between me doing the project or not yeah and then when you go to the greenfields area as you said there is a direct cost there that's just going again and again towards increasing the price of these blocks i think we need to flip the onus of responsibility for the money to be charged so what do i mean by that there needs to be more onus on state and local government to demonstrate their ability to deliver those pieces of infrastructure within a time frame and the time frame that's been set by the state government is 10 years for any new DCP. If they can't demonstrate they've got the financial capacity and or there's enough development being delivered in that 10-year period, don't charge it. Yeah, That's been a fight that I personally have been pushing for a long, long time. That's charging for no infrastructure. That's if the right. infrastructure is turning up, no problems. But time and time and time again, the infrastructure does not turn up. That allows me to segue perfectly into the number three example of a government policy that just came on our desk last week. It's the new draft public open space contribution policy that further cements an existing policy and further broadens an existing policy that I look at as a massive cash grab from local governments through the state government policy to charge developers from any level above a house behind a house subdivision now between 5 and 10% of the value of the original land plot to nominally go towards the acquisition of, improvement of, or provision of public open space, parklands essentially. And yep. my view on this is that this policy was set up decades ago for the peats, the yep. stocklands of the world, to make sure that when they're developing Canning Vale 40 years ago, Canning Vale had 10% of its land yep. set aside apart. That's a good idea. I think it everyone is. agrees to that. And if your block wasn't in the right area for a park, you paid 10% of your land value to contribute towards the guy who's giving up land for a park. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It does. Right? Let's think about... And it's demonstrable. I think that's it the is. key. You can actually demonstrate that that park the nexus. exists. 
There it is. It's over there. Yeah, that was the point and there is clear value. Yeah. Obviously, we're all benefiting from that. Yeah. Again, when we're trying to provide 47% of our supply in urban infill, which already has so many roadblocks in the way culturally in the first place, a policy like this, which expands that original policy that was meant for your pizza and your stocklands of the world back then to do the right thing, yeah. has now been hijacked, Frankensteined by local governments and now culturally pushed back up to state government to formalize this through this draft policy to allow them the ability to grab that money from mum and dad developer doing a triplex in Warwick. And that property might be a 728 square meter block that they paid $700,000 for in today's market. The city of Joondalup would have the ability now to charge that developer $35,000 as a condition of their subdivision approval. Now that $35,000 doubles the cost of the subdivision and is essentially the profit for most people. So therefore, what happens there, Mm. Jeremy, is that either they don't do the subdivision at all or they just do a house behind a house to avoid the condition in the first place. This is one of the most ridiculous, idiotic schemes coming from a planning department sitting in its ivory tower with no connection to the real world issues of providing urban infill for mum and dad developers all the way up to mid-sized developers who are trying to do their job, trying to provide a service to the industry, to the community. And what do they do? They get hit on the bum on the way through to a point where they go, you know what? What's the point? So there's the state government saying, we want urban infill. Guys, we're doing everything we can. And then the department sitting under that, doing everything they can to make it harder and more expensive along the way. Surely this is affecting you as well. When the state government came in, they came in on the platform of Metronet. In those first four years, if you wanted to have a meeting with any government department, including ministers, it had to be about Metronet, and then you could start talking about what you wanted to afterwards. What's my point there? My point there is if housing supply is the key focus for this next four-year period, then that should be at the centre of every conversation that we have. Every policy. Yeah. So when you circle back to your question there, when every policy comes out, there should be a lens that's put across it to say, well, is this helping or hindering housing supply? And if the answer is that it's hindering it, then it can't come in. So... That's it, a great way to put it, Jeremy. Yeah, well, it's and, as simple as that, isn't how it? How successful is Metronet? You know, I know a lot of people maybe throw stones at it, but being in and around government for as long as I have been, the delivery of Metronet and especially the Ellenbrook Railway and down at Byford, that is a tangible benefit for the community in a generational asset. Needed to happen. It needed to happen. It couldn't, however, happen unless you had a government that was singly focused on it. Because they had to set up new departments and all sorts of stuff in order to get all of the different agencies to work together in such a short period of time. It sounds like a long time, right? It's been four or five years. It's actually a heartbeat. Not much gets delivered in that sort of time frame, especially from a standing start. So I think that this government is capable of it, but they need to be motivated enough to put that as their platform that that's what they're going to stand for. And brave, because there is a difference between government and the bureaucracy that does the work underneath them, right? And it seems like the messaging we get from government is we want to fix housing supply, but the actions that happen at the department below them are actually working against that in a lot of ways. It might not be on purpose. It probably Mm. isn't on purpose. I think it's acting in a silo and it's not being recognized that so many of these, inverted commas, good ideas are actually working exactly against what we're trying to achieve holistically, which is housing supply. A perfect example, we'll 
people tie it back to the POS contribution is that they're trying to expand this into apartment development. The one yeah. thing we need to start shifting towards <laughs> is culturally moving towards apartment development, ex- accepting it as a form of dwelling it, and an amenity it base. It amenity with it. And all we're doing is mm. charging more money yeah. for, as it, for And where's it going? Towards putting a new swing set in Netherlands? Yeah. They're not going to be spending money on buying houses to provide more parks. That's definitely not happening no. in Brownfields areas. Good luck. It's never happening. And there's no need to gold plate the existing stuff we've got because the existing stuff we've got, I don't know if you've seen, Jeremy, you've got young kids. Some of the playgrounds we've got in Perth are phenomenal, right? Yeah. So we don't need to be fixing them up. Where's the money going? All it's doing is going into local government coffers to sit there. It's the end consumer who is paying the price for that. But let's take a slight step back to what you just said earlier in relation to the amenity bit. I take the opinion and my lived experience is that when you go into these higher density areas, the cafes, restaurants and other commercial offerings that are at the ground floor of those buildings. That's the fabric of a suburb. It's, that's amenity. So why then does that development need to provide more and more and more and more amenity. I think that there is initially a jarring of, no, I don't want towers in my development, but I'm more than happy to have the cafe and restaurant. So I think that if people actually were honest with themselves and looked at density in that larger scale, as long as it's done in a tight node with existing amenity around it, I think that that, you'd be hard-pressed to say that that's not a good thing. In relation to the 47%, I still think that we need to do that on a staged basis where the built form is palatable and not too jarring for those people out in the suburbs. We're putting up three, four-storey buildings in these inner brownfield locations. It's still going to be fairly jarring. It has to happen somewhere, though. The weird thing does. about our city, Jeremy, is that we have medium to high density around the city. Yeah. And then we go down to low density straight and away. And then we go back up to medium density again on the fringes because it's yeah. the only thing that developers can afford to deliver to clients. So well, that's, that's there's the this hole about 20 kilometers from yeah. the city yeah. of super low density that goes back up again. So we're creating these squashed environments to the fringes yeah. to protect the middle ring. It doesn't make sense to me. At the moment, the middle ring probably sits around 700 odd square meters average. And that's not based on any science. That's just the best guess. Whereas in the greenfield areas, the government requirement is that it sits at 15 dwellings per gross hectare. And when you do that maths backwards, it's about 375 square metres. So as a developer out in those greenfield areas, even if you want to deliver larger blocks, you're actually mandated to keep it. It's counterintuitive socio-demographically and socio-economically, in my opinion. It starts to push people into certain environments. Yeah. Is the greenfield component of our industry important? Yeah, it's critical. You know, that's where the volume comes from. What do we do about increasing the volume in brownfields and providing more diversity of product in we brownfields? get out of the way of apartments. It has to be, Jeremy. Get out of the way that's of the only way to provide volume. If you did a sell-end policy where you put in single or two-story product on every single cell end within uh, those... That too. Let's, that, let's add it to the mix. Number. Yeah, yeah. I don't think do they have to be things. agree, yeah. There has to right. be... Fundamentally, I was saying this analogy before we started, it's like having your kids at the table and having <laughs> the bowl of broccoli and yep. the ice cream. We recognize that the broccoli is the thing we need to have 
for us to be healthy in the future. That's the apartment development. That's the urban infill. The ice cream is the easy, tasty thing that is easy to deliver, easy to consume, looks fantastic. Got my own American Australian dream. We're taking away the knife and fork here and we're asking people to eat their veggies with their hands whilst the ice cream is sitting on the table. It ain't happening. It's just, what, how can we expect kids to make that decision in the same way? How can we expect the industry and the consumers to choose apartments when it's so much harder to deliver, yeah. so much more expensive per square meter to buy, mm. when we can just go buy some 350 square meter block out in Bald Ibis and brag to our mates? Why would anyone ever logically make that decision? Yeah, I think that to a large extent, I agree, but there is communities that don't necessarily want to be Perth-centric. So and there'll always be supply. There's hundreds yeah, of thousands of properties already available exactly. to them. And if you look at that sort of northern corridor, you know, if, I, if you go sort of north of Joondalup, Wanneroo type area, that's its own Township now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so maybe there's a discussion that needs to be had around that too because that's, in my mind, that's a bit of a success story. That's got all the ability to deliver all of that density was with low density as well in the appropriate proportions. But we don't really have a, another centre like that. Midland's sort of... Kinda. It just doesn't have the demographics. No, I think. and then in the southern suburbs, it, I think it was meant to be Coburn. That was a failure. I'm I think of sure timing as well. A friend of mine has one of the apartments in Coburn Central. They were selling, and this is only about a year ago, in the sub three hundred. Yeah, there's been range. huge financial loss. A lot of that was sold through superannuation funds, yeah. sold through investment schemes, and a lot of people lost a lot of money in that product. And that's because it's in the wrong environment. It's in the wrong spot, you yeah. don't need, uh, Coburn Central's at this point in time not where yep. apartments at that high density should be provided. It should yeah. be in your Maylands, in your River Vales where it already is. Obviously, extending yep. that in your Belmonts, in your Bayswaters, along the existing train lines within the first five six stops Bassendine these areas are all heavily protected for some reason and it's because they're able to be protected by their very fickle local governments who have a power play and that power play extends and filters up into the state government where conditions are set that are unworkable for people to actually provide the amenity that people would buy. I'd be very confident right now if there are properties zoned for and allowed for the correct density in places like Bassendine and, and Bayswater and Maylands that would work for apartment developers, extra height was provided for, allowed yeah. for. Rivervale's a great example. I think it pre, would happen. Pre-COVID, Pre-COVID, the apartments in Rivervale were actually really quite affordable. Uh, so that's a good example of where it can occur city the, the, beach the elephant. scarborough trig yeah. north beach marmion waterman's bay why is west coast drive protected <laughs> yeah well, i won't go into that one <laughs> for me the, the elephant in the room is construction you mm. know the, the construction costs have blown out wildly and until something fundamentally changes with the supply chain i don't know where that lands i think everybody can guess at it but i've got no idea so uh, unfortunately uh, i can't see any panacea in the short term for apartments heavy lifting sits on land development at the moment i think so and for probably the medium term but to your point now is the time where we should be doing the heavy lifting in that planning space to so prepare. that yeah. when when we we are ready we can go again like because with river valley you know go to that example that's a great example there's a lot of density in that node surrounded by commercial and major roads but there's also the river there right so you got all the amenity and are there plenty of other locations like that yeah sure mm. there's plenty of them let's talk about solutions we yeah. often end up talking about issues <laughs> on this podcast but we've got a fantastic mind in the studio today who's job it is 
in both of his hats really is to think about these solutions. What are the messages, the priorities you're trying to deliver to the Minister for Planning at the moment that I can reiterate in a couple of weeks? Well, the MD codes is a pretty simple one. I mean, that, that is going to add cost full stop so every single home that's gets turn around and say we're putting this on hold for the next three years yeah something like that yeah and i think that would be an appropriate time frame because can he uh, do that can he being the new minister coming in it wasn't his to start with can he turn around with integrity and say look i've listened to the community and we just need to put this on hold it's a good idea but just not for now this government and the ministers within it are strong enough capable enough and have the um, wherewithal to do as they see fit. Yeah, They've demonstrated call. that over the time. Yeah, it is. Uh, I think that as long as it's a genuine position, and, and I obviously believe that it's a genuine position that it will add cost and significant cost. I'm not talking a couple of thousand dollars here. I'm talking tens of thousands of yeah, dollars. Yeah, structurally changes the whole bill form. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So do I think they can do it? Absolutely. I, th- I think this government is a strong government and has done some amazing things and will continue to do what they think is right. What else? I think that there are line items that could save tens of thousands of dollars that aren't actually resulting in anything being built. Developer contribution schemes for libraries and major road upgrades and these sorts of things that might be on a 20 or 30 year horizon, they should just be taken out of the equation. 30, 40, 50 years ago, dating all the way back, these pieces of infrastructure were either provided by the state, provided the federal, by rates. As, right? And the federal government as yeah, well. exactly. Yeah. So it's only in the last 15 or, or 20 years that developer contributions have stepped into this space. And the reason that we got the new policy a few years ago when the planning minister, the then planning minister, brought it in was because there was a DCP in Henley Brook, which was advertised at $77,000 a lot. Yep. Now, those blocks were going to sell for sort of 200 and they'll probably cost about 100 to build them. You don't even need to do the maths to know it's not going to work. Like, yeah. That's how broken it got before something got I remember changed. speaking to the planning guys there at the time. And, yeah. and the thing in the local government there is they openly admitted they don't have the skills to estimate these things. And to be fair to them now, that's probably even harder. So I don't think any of us should be estimating what something's going to cost in 20 years time because it's an impossibility to know maybe we won't be driving cars in 20 years time (laughs) who knows so so there's that i think that there's other things that can be done in relation to the school stuff that you were referring to the temporary bushfire stuff you know the bell rating is a huge issue bushfire protection is really important i'm not certainly not saying that it's not important but where it's protecting against temporary grasslands, there needs to be a level of pragmatism that's brought into it. 100% agree. Because to put a bell 12 and a half on a property, that's about $10,000. And when you're building in some of the more semi-rural areas yeah. or areas that just have existing remnant bushland yeah. that may or may not be cleared at some level, you can be at bell 29. Yeah. And, and the setbacks have to be essentially street widths just to be able to build anything. And then what we have to do is create inefficient subdivision designs that have way more road than necessary simply just to set back from a couple of existing trees. Now, the argument for that would be we don't need to get rid of the trees. Just be more pragmatic about the actual risk those trees being there poses to bushfire risks on a home. We've lived here amongst trees for over 100 years with houses. And the number of bushfires that exist in the urban areas compared to the hills, for example, where there's actual risk is negligible. However, the amount of power sitting with DFES right now that mandates these very stringent, extremely risk-averse bowel ratings sitting on our 
urban infill and even urban expansion development is adding a lot of complexity, a lot of cost and cost, time yeah. and inefficiencies to our developments. Yeah. Would you say that's a fair comment? I, I think that absolutely. I think that the pendulum has swung way too far. I certainly believe that bushfire protection should be employed on the lots that are directly facing the regional park or where the bushland is remaining in perpetuity. But there should be the ability to do clearing temporary yeah, bushfires. Or, or assumed clearing in the future if we're, let's say we're in Henleybrook and yeah. we're a quarter of the way through our land subdivision of the suburb and there are existing blocks that haven't been subdivided yet. The current bowel system would yeah. have you have to yep. set back 13 to 20 meters from your next door neighbor who in three years time will sell, you will develop yeah. and that won't be a factor anymore. But you can't change that again. No. You can't reverse time again. So what you've done is create these huge inefficiencies in the land development, which increase cost because it's cost per square meter of the land development, but which I'll, is passed on to the, the client. I'll bring it to that same principle. What value is that adding to that home? Yeah. It's not adding any value to that home whatsoever. And it's not actually protecting the home in perpetuity either. So the grassland one was the one that really got me X amount of years ago where grass over 100 mil is considered a bushfire threat. I mean, yeah. come on. Give me strength. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Should we leave it there? Yes. Jeremy Cordina, <laughs> General Manager at Parcel and Vice President at UDIWA. It's been a really fantastic conversation some candid comments there and ones that we can bring to the ministry and ones i'm sure you're continually chatting with government about in your position as an advocate for this state thank you for the work you do please keep bringing all those voices together if we keep singing from the same hymn book we should make some positive changes to make a difference in this state over the next few years thank you thank you thank you for listening to another episode of the perth property show If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!